Timothy chapter 4, the first five verses. Last week we looked, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, convince, exhort with long suffering and teaching. The time will come, they will endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves that they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And in verse 5, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, be watchful in all things. Do affliction, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So the affliction comes from being an evangelist. <laughs> and uh, that's the inference here is most of the time, we are going to re get rejected. Paul says, I'll show you the scars on my body that I did not fail to teach Christ and him crucified, which was foolishness to the Greeks, the Gentiles. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. But to those who had hearts to receive, it became the wisdom and the power of God unto salvation. And then Paul rejoices and says, I'm well pleased with those who preach the foolish message of Christ. And then in chapter 4, he said, we've become fools for Christ. To the person that the lights are up and you turn the lights on, it's not going to be appreciated at first. And we saw how one sows, another waters, another harvests. So the majority of the time we're planting seeds, whether it appears nothing's happening or not. And Isaiah says that word goes out, never returns void, but it'll accomplish what it was sent out to do. A friend of mine, Peter Barnes, who was uh, a drug witness for 30 years, and he was from England, and he came over to here to oversee all of San Diego County. He was a big drug witness guy. He became born again and he said, in the 30 years I was Jehovah Witness, I estimate I went to 70,000 different homes, knocked on their door. Five times somebody said, you're wrong, and here's a verse I want you to look at. Those five verses nagged him until one day he was reading the Watchtower magazine and they were telling a different way to look at certain scriptures, confusing again. And the word came back, <clears throat> just read the New Testament for yourself. How can what you be saying is true if this passage exists? In those five verses, he says, nagged him to salvation. Couldn't let him go. And so if you share the word, it'll never return void, right? Paul says, whether life into life or death into death, who's sufficient for these things? To one, we're aroma of life leading to more life. To another, death leading unto death. But what do we discover? That Isaiah was saying, who will go for me? Whom shall I send, the Lord asked me, and whom will I send? And Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, I'm going. He goes, yeah, you're going. <laughs> and by the way, you're never going to have one convert. You're going to go, but they're not going to listen. But you got to go. And you need to prophesy for me, even though you're not going to have one convert. Yet, you need to go evangelize. 
And of course, Jeremiah never had a convert. You know, we think of the big prophets. And they spent their whole lives. They were imprisoned and beaten and went through all kinds of crazy prophet stuff, you know, like Ezekiel having to strip naked and lay on his side and eat his food off of poop chunks that's only kindling he could use as feces to eat his food from, prophesying to them. He did that for a year to prophesy they're going to go into bondage. And so God said, you know, Ezekiel, if you go tell him and they don't listen, you're, you're scot-free. You've done your responsibility. But if you know judgment's coming, and it is coming, and you don't tell them, and they then did not know because you didn't tell them to believe, then I'm holding their judgment on your head. The blood will be upon your hands. Interesting, Paul says that same thing in Acts 20. He says, I've preached you the whole counsel of God, night and day with tears for three years, and I am innocent of the blood of all you guys in Ephesus. And so it's, it's not saying, well, I've tried to evangelize and I just wasn't good at it. I think that's the way Timothy felt. I think that's the way most people think. And that's why Paul said, who's sufficient for these things? Who, who can give the perfect message to the person that's going to be exactly what they need to hear? Probably nobody. But God's Holy Spirit, through his power, does it. And then maybe you're just watering. I'm sharing the Lord with this guy. He's not interested, a little upset that I'm bothering him. But God just using me to put a little water on that seed that was maybe planted by his grandmother back when he was eight years old. Who knows? And then some of us get to harvest. But the fact is, I just believe it with all my heart that every Christian at some point is going to lead a non-believer to Christ and then help them to follow Christ and walk them through all the seasons that we've been through and still going through. I think that's what God has made you for. This is the predestined work of God in every believer. And so if you're here and you're saying, well, I, I, you know, I think I've shared my faith. I can't really remember when. I, I'm saying to make an effort when you're, getting gas, you're at the grocery store, you're at McDonald's, whatever it is. I don't know how you can do it. Get tracks. Maybe that's all you can do right now is not open your mouth, but you can hand out tracks. Maybe it's just the verse that God gives you each day. Just say, Lord, give me a verse every morning, and I will share that verse with at least one person. I know a pastor from Colorado years and years ago, the Lord put him to vow in his heart, that every day of his life, as he was a very young man, that he would share the Lord with at least one person. And he was a pastor, so it's a little harder to do sometimes because you're in a Christian bubble. But man, how many stories this guy had where he would be, you know, heading home and, and he just got there with a meeting or he was preaching somewhere and it's, you know, 1030 at night and he's like, the Lord just brings it to mind. Hey, who'd you share with? Ah, oh, nobody. And sometimes he'd be in a small town trying to drive around and find what's open. And amazing stories. Amazing, amazing stories. 
divine appointments because he purposed in his heart. Well, Paul is saying to Timothy, and I think to all of us, because we're all ministers, right? Once a hand, once a foot, once an ear. But all of us need to be evangelists. Well, that's a hard thing to do. You get rejected. You get, yeah, I know. Endure the affliction of that, by the way. Everybody's just got to get a few scars. He, remember he said earlier, everyone who lives righteously will be persecuted, right? So this is just the facts of it. But I believe the Lord here in his final three words. This is Paul's, who wrote half the New Testament, final exhortation, guys. And the final three words are, fulfill your ministry. So I asked the guys to pass these cards out here. They're very pretty cards, by the way. You ever see this? I love that forest green color there. And it almost looks Christmassy with the little dots and stuff. But it says Calvary Chapel, referring to Calvary Chapel Red Bluff here. And uh, has our website and phone number. It says you're invited and has the times of the services. This week, hand out one card. Now, if you'd like to do more than one, right here's a box. You might get more. But at least one person. And it's not really sharing the Lord, because I, I, I don't, I honestly don't share the Lord with anybody trying to get them to church, because uh, I don't want there to be a, a, any other motive, you know, than just them coming to Christ. And I just tell them, find a good church that teaches the Bible, man. Read the Bible and find a good church. And I just leave it at that. But more often than not, put my number on the thing and they'll call me and I'll say, yeah, this is where I go to church. And so I just encourage you. The next thing I would encourage you to do this week, your homework, is spend a minute writing your testimony. Take about a page. You know, don't, don't uh, put in all the nuances. But the general gist, you know, I was blind and now I see. And maybe there was a particular verse or sermon or thought process. The guilt of your own sin. Your fallenness. Maybe you were backslidden from a being raised in a Christian home, whatever it is, write that out. And next week, your homework, unless you want to do it this week too, share it with one person. You know, you'd be amazed. If you just said to the waitress at Denny's, can I read my testimony to you of how, what Christ did in my life? You know, people mostly would say, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, go for it. I'd like to hear what you have to say. Or if you stopped a guy at, I don't know, 7-Eleven and said, hey, I know you came in here to grab some donuts, but hang on a minute. Do you got a minute for me to read my testament? I just have a hard time. I'm going to get a call. I have a hard time believing I'm going to get a call. You know, Rob's in the hospital, uh, got beat up by a guy because he tried to read him his testimony. I just don't think we're there yet. Now, I've been in Muslim countries. And uh, yeah, yeah, that definitely would happen. Uh, Israel, almost a good friend of ours, Manuel, part of our church, was sharing the Lord with some guys in a coffee shop uh, there in the Ben-Gurion area, Ben-Gurion Street, and a whole mob of very Hasidic teenagers were there. And the guy said, there's a back door, and you better take off running as hard as you can. They will kill you. Hasidic Jews who did not like the idea that we were sharing Christ in the Jewish quarter area of that Ben-Gurion Street. 
So I don't think that's going to happen. But you know what? I think you're going to discover the pleasure of God. In Romans, it says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of them that spread the good news. It's just a beautiful thing to God. Do it as unto the Lord. And of course, hopefully in somewhere in the mix of all of that, you'll get a love for people like Christ had, why he suffered so much to die on the cross for us. And that same love would compel your heart to share your faith. Well, Paul is quite confident, as we're going to discover, that he has fulfilled his ministry. And a big part of fulfilling that ministry was evangelizing when he didn't feel that he really had the ability to do it. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to preach the gospel to you, I came in weakness and in fear and in trembling, he says. This is after he'd been an apostle quite a while. But I determined not to know anything among you but Christ and him crucified, that your faith would not rest in an eloquent sermon, but that your faith would rest in the spirit and the power of God. So Paul, when he went to these towns, we think, oh man, he's just big stud out there and confident and no, he often went through the jitters. <laughs> he often uh, felt very weak. Um, he didn't feel strong. He felt afraid and nervous each time, each foreign city he went to. This is just part of fulfilling your ministry. And now he wanted to know that Timothy, he wanted that comfort that Timothy was calculating things correctly not letting himself off the hook easily about evangelizing, about fulfilling his ministry. And he wants to see that Timothy finishes well. You know, in contrast, I think of Archippus. In Colossians 4, verse 17, Paul writes, Say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord. Interesting that you may fulfill it. Archippus had given himself a retirement party. He had said, man, I've been teaching Sunday school for 20 years, and that's it. My ministry's over. Is it really? I've been on 10 missionary trips, and that's enough for me. Is that what the Lord's saying? I, I don't know. And this is where you need to come back to say as people can often do when they get up in their 40s and 50s and 60s and they have a little more financial security in some cases and they're just ready to take a break and retire from life, often the areas of spiritual life. Be careful. Maybe Archippus was one some 60-year-old guy who used to have a prayer ministry or evangelism ministry or alcohol and drug you know, ministry, I, I don't know what it was. And he's saying, hey, you need to get back in there. I know you got beat up a little bit. You got hurt by some people. You didn't have as much fruit for a year or two as you used to have. And, and you threw down the gauntlet and said, I'm done running the race. No, God doesn't give us that pass. And then I think also in contrast, right here in this very chapter, he's going to point out a guy by the name of Demas. We hear about Demas, first of all, in Philemon, that little one-page book. And he 
puts Demas in a pretty good group of guys. He says, Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, Dr. Luke. And he calls all these guys, including Demas, my fellow laborers. That word is yoked fellows. It's the word where you get two oxen in the same big giant wooden yoke and the two of them together are plowing the field. But they have to be alike. You can't have two separate different oxen. They have to be a, the same size. So they can, you can have a yoke way up here and a smaller yoke down here. They got to have similar muscle uh, mass. There's a similarity for two oxen to be put together. And these guys he's saying were, were equal in laboring for the Lord. Dr. Luke, Mark, Aristarchus, and, and Demon, we're a team of five guys right now, including Paul himself, just doing an amazing ministry. The next time we hear in Colossians 4.14, it says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. This time, it's, it's not saying he's a yoked fellow. It's just he's with us. He's here, present. And uh, all I can say on this note is that he says, hi. But then we come to the last mention of Demas. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, it says, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, has, it, having, has departed for Thessalonica. Interesting here, he makes it clear that Demas, who was the yoke fellow, who was hanging out with us, he finally came to the point. He just had no more heart for God or the work of the ministry. And uh, the love of this world has choked out the love for the Lord. And he is no longer with us. So Timothy is reading this. Timothy knows, am I in Archippus? Am I heading in the direction that Demas headed in? Sounds like there's some pretty serious issues as we read 1 Timothy, and then especially 2 Timothy. And now he's saying, Timothy, you're in a rut, but you don't have to stay there. But now Paul is going to use the testimony of his own life to hopefully encourage Timothy and all of us. Notice what he says in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. The drink offering, if you go back and interesting, uh, all the way back in Genesis, Jacob offered one, but in the law, it was the final sacrifice. You know, we often think of the blood sacrifices of the lamb and, and other animals. But there's also the grain offerings, flour and how you do that. But then there are also drink offerings, typically wine. But that would be the final one. And the drink offering would be very, very slowly poured out. But the key of it is you had to empty out every bit of it to the very last drop. And Paul is saying that in Philippians 2, verse 17 and 18, he says it, 
Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. I'm rejoicing. Guys, I'm, I'm doing it. Remember, he saw himself as living as a sacrifice and encouraged us all to do the same. In Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, there it is, as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So Paul is saying, I'm constantly, daily, that living sacrifice. And as I live that way, I know what the good and acceptable and the perfect will of God is. I'm able to, to, to know that I'm right in the middle of what the Lord has for my life when I'm conscious that, yes, my life is to be a sacrifice to the pleasure of God to build up the church. But then he said it. He calculated it. Years earlier, he said to the Philippians, man, I feel like, you know, we're getting close to the end <laughs> of the sacrificial service of the Apostle Paul. And I can feel that last sacrifice, the drink offering, now being picked up. And right now, and he's going to talk about it next week, while he's in Rome, everybody has forsaken him. He's cold. He needs a cloak. We talked about it in chapter 2 that all of Asia, which was the main bulk of Christians at that time, had all forsaken him. We saw in the book of Philippians how they had badmouthed him, hoping to preach not just Jesus and him crucified, but preaching in a way to speak against Paul and to make Paul, while he was in his chains, even more painful. And Paul is saying, yeah, I am not done until the last drop of my life is given for the will and the glory of God. Do you see Paul's mindset here? And notice, he says, as that final drop is being done, the time now of my departure is at hand. I can sense it. The Lord speaking to my heart. Paul, just a few more days. Just a few more people to share the Lord with. You're going to be standing before Nero. And that last drop is going to be poured out. Notice the Bible doesn't say, and I'm getting ready to die. Because it's often so untrue of a description for the believer. Interesting, this word departure is a specific word that Paul probably knew well. When you were going to take down a tent, remember Paul was a tent maker, you would pull the ropes, right? And then the tent collapses in. And this is the word, to pull the ropes, to collapse the tent, to move on, to pack up the tent, to move and, and put the tent in another location. Paul is saying, I'm pulling up the tent pegs. It's, we're getting ready to move to a new location. This word also, though, could mean the unburdening of an animal, releasing an animal, maybe taking the saddle off a horse, or to take the bridle out of the mouth of the, the horse. Another thing it could also mean is loosing the bonds, taking chains off of somebody who's been imprisoned. 
And then one more. It's like cutting the anchor, pulling out the mooring so the ship can be free out in the ocean. Paul is saying, I'm pulling up the stakes. I'm being unburdened by this body that's chaining me. I'm going to be free floating through the ocean, man. No anchor holding me back, dragging along the way. And I am going to be untethered, a free animal, taking the yoke off the horse, taking the yoke out of its mouth and letting it run through the fields. That's what's getting ready to happen. That final drop is going to happen, and I'm going to depart. I'm going to be unloosed, ready to go to that next place. You know, it's so important that we don't, don't forget that. Remember, Jesus said to Mary and Martha, you know, well, your brother will rise again. Well, I know in the last day there'll be a resurrection or something. I'm not sure. Jesus says, no, I am the resurrection of life. He who believes in me shall never die. And know what he said? Let's look at some of the descriptions the Lord gives of how he looks at our departure from this flesh. In Psalms 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. In Luke 23, 43, Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's almost like forget about paradise, me. Wherever Jesus is, is paradise, isn't it? And here's this thief on the cross who sinned mocking Jesus on the way to the cross, even on the cross. If you look at the Gospels, both these were mocking Jesus with, the, with all the surrounding people. And then he had a change of heart going, oh, I think this is the Christ. And he believed, and, and he's going to be sharing the same heaven we are. In John 14, verses 1 through 4, it says this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Jesus is just saying, when you think about departing from this flesh, pulling up the stakes and getting ready to fold up the tent and go to another place, realize you should just have joy. It should be comforting. And, and the bottom line is where you're moving. It's a place where the Father has prepared a mansion for you in my Father's house. And then Paul mocks death in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57. He says, oh, death. Where is your sting? It's like he's being sarcastic, mocking it. Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and God has taken away all our sin from us, hasn't he? And the strength of sin is the law. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? Just mock it. Yeah, there's no sting for the believer anymore. 
Hades has no grip on us anymore. Because he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And in Philippians 1, 21, and 20 to, 21 to 23, for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Gain. If I live on the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor, yet I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Do we see this? We are confident. We are well pleased. It's the greater desire to be out of this tent, present with the Lord. And one more, in 1 Thessalonians 4.14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. A term of death. Isn't that awesome? We're just going to fall asleep in this body, so to speak. And immediately, Jesus is going to be stroking our face with his hands or fluffing our hair. Brian, whoo, what? Jesus! Oh. Isn't it going to be awesome? Our dear brother, Dwayne Rose, died today. Well, excuse me, fell asleep in Jesus today. Excuse me, departed today. Pulled up his tent. Precious in the eyes of the Lord. Today was a special day for Jesus. Right? Let not your heart be troubled. Well, in verse 7, Paul's going to also, looking back on his life, speak of how confidence he is that there's no regret. Quite the opposite. He says here, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have fought. This is the word in Greek, agonizomai. We get our word agony from it. Paul says, I've agonized in the fight, the agon. The agon is a word which is talking about either a wrestling match or a military battle. I have been fighting this thing agonizing, striving. We see this word used in Luke 13, 24, the same word, strive, fight, agonizomai, to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. In Colossians 1, 29, Paul uses that same word here. To this end, I also labor, striving, agonizing, according to his working, which works in me mightily. He's grabbing hold of God for what God grabbed a hold of him for. In Colossians 6.12, talking about Epaphras' prayer life. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always, here it is, laboring fervently, it's interpreted, or, uh, which is agonizing for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. 
And then also we see this word for wrestling match or for the military battle, Agon. It's in 1 Timothy 6.12 where it says there, I the fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He is saying you've got to fight to the end. You got to keep fighting until the final drop is dropped and you grab a hold of eternal life with a fervency, not a passivity. The word good here, the good fight, we would maybe translate that better as saying grand, the best, the most glorious. There's a lot of things to fight for, right? Politically, we can fight for our party, fight for our candidate. People are fighting for the wells, fighting for the spotted owls. Some people are fighting for babies being aborted. Some people are fighting for the insane who are living a homeless life. There, there's a lot of fights, right? But this is the best fight, the most glorious fight. And then he says, secondly here, I have finished the race. I'm winning the race, he says, but I'm also finishing the race. You know, there are some races that a very few people make it to the end. You ever seen those triathlons, right? They have some of those that it's, it's really not that many people who actually can finish it. I saw one year where the people coming across were literally seizing up. Have you seen that? Where they literally are just, they're cramping so bad. They look like a statue <laughs> trying to walk and just fall across that thing. And, and they literally collapse and they got to hook up IVs to them. And, and uh, because they swam so far and then biked and then ran and they, Really, in, in most of those races, the fact that they were able to get into the race was in and of itself sort of a victory. And uh, a lot of those people didn't really think they were going to finish. They definitely didn't think they were going to win. But then you have the handful of guys, the top five or ten guys, everybody knows who they are, and they write them all up, and those are the guys that will finish, and they're going to be neck and neck trying to win that triathlon. But Paul makes it clear here that it's not entering the race that's the glorious thing. Although that is. Put your trust in Christ to begin walking, following Christ. Begin that first day to deny yourself. Take up that cross and, and follow Jesus. Be a disciple of Christ. That is a glorious beginning, isn't it? And the person who's been walking in the Lord a week, he often gets down and he's like, I, I don't know if I'm saved because this happened and that happened. And, you know, can I really be saved? And, you know, these kind of troubles come upon me or these kind of faults or these sins still be in my life. And, and we're like, yeah, keep running the race, man. Yes. Yep. Let me share a verse with you. And verses that are like ABC to us or, you know, rocket scientists to them, you know, confess your sin. He's faithful and righteous. Forgive you of your sin. Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Oh, man, where was that? First John chapter 1, verse 9. You're amazing. You know the whole Bible, don't you? Oh, you know. 
It's like, yeah, you're doing good, man. You've been a week in the race. But, but Jesus made it clear, didn't he? If you put your hand to the plow, you can never look back or you are never fit to begin. Jesus made it clear it's the ending of the race is where the prize comes for the believer. It is a glorious thing to begin, but the glories of eternal life, the crowns of life, the heaven is finishing. In Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all those who have died in the faith, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, this great cloud of witnesses, the angels, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and what? finisher of our faith it is by God's spirit isn't it when we get weak we then press in on the Lord going God I cannot take another step and then he says well none of those other steps were on your own either and the next step will not be on your own it'll be by the grace of God well to start or to finish the race you got to start it but it is in finishing that the Lord is glorified. You know, I, th I think of Jesus. <laughs> he said it, didn't I? Last thing on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. Interesting, the day before though, when he was praying in John 17, the last few hours before he would be crucified, in John 17, 4, Jesus was praying in the most glorious prayer, I think, of the Bible where he's praying for the apostles and us. He actually prays for us by name, those who would believe through their word. And he says in John 17, 4, I have glorified you on the earth. And then listen to what Jesus says. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. Jesus made it clear. He finished the race. In that garden of Gethsemane, remember? Father, if there's any other way... <laughs> For this cup to pass. And then angels came and ministered to him as sweat and blood were mixed and dropped to the ground. It was by the power of the Father, the work of the Spirit, the love of Jesus helped him to finish. And he was able to say, I did it to the end. And he says, Father, I've glorified you on the earth. To finish that race, we need endurance. Listen to this. I think this is so perfect for the American Christian. In Hebrews 10, verse 35 to 39. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which is great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done well, done the will of God, you receive the promise. Yet for a little while, he who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. That word to draw back, that word perdition, it's the word used for Judas. Man, he was with the Lord. He saw the miracles. He went out himself and cast out demons. 
But yet the Lord says, many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, I was there in the marketplace when you preached. I did miracles in your name. I cast out demons in your name. And Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't. He says, yeah, the power of my spirit worked through you, but my spirit didn't dwell in you and you yielded to the will of God. And so we see that we cannot draw back, that we have to be in this marathon and we hit the wall. <laughs> they say at the 18th mile, you hit the wall and you just, you can't feel the limbs of your body. You're completely drained your body after all these hours of running. And there's just something you do. It's just, you've trained yourself that when you hit that wall and you can't feel your body, you can't feel your extremities, you feel like you're in an out-of-body experience just moving, that, that there's something that happens for several miles, that it's all in the will of the person to make it. The body can do it if the, the, the person, the will of the person can push themselves. We also see to finish that race, we've got to have the goal to finish the race. Listen to Paul's determination along the way. He talked a lot about this race stuff. In 1 Corinthians 9, probably thinking towards the end, right, of his life. He says, do you not know, in verse 24, that those who run in the race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Now listen to verse 26. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body, bring it to subjection, lest after I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul said that of himself, that I have to now say the race I'm running, it doesn't mean anything until I pass that line. I'm in a spiritual battle fighting this flesh, fighting the devil, fighting the world. But I know who I'm fighting and I'm not wasting any punches. I'm going for the knockout. And he did this with joy. In Acts 20 verse 24, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race, notice, with joy. And the ministry which I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of Christ. This word race, it's the word course. The way they would have understood it is in all the ways. You go through the various courses of your life, right? There's various courses of a mill. The, the stars are in course in their system, right? And Paul, in, in essence, is sort of giving a dual concept here. Yes, it's a race I'm finishing, but it's a course by course by course. I'm taking this leg of the race, if you would. And I realize that there's no coincidences in God's kingdom. I'll tell you this, and I don't know if it's just as you get older, maybe I'm just stupid and should have learned it a few decades before, but the sovereignty of God, he has us in course, right? And, and in that course is a course of trials, and we all know that. 
And it says the whole reason is to purify our faith. Real faith is such a beautiful thing, isn't it? I mean, just, you, you just see it. I, I remember my son, Tracy, who's now with the Lord. When he was a little tiny kid, he just, I don't know where he got it from or heard it in Sunday school or something, but he believed. I mean, he could barely talk. But he, and when he prayed, man, I mean, he believed God blessed that mill. If you were feeling sick, you know, he's like, oh, let's go for, go out and play, Dad. Oh, son, I got a headache. He'd just lay hands on you and believe that headache to be gone. Now, come on, let's go. It was such a beauty in faith. And I love that when Jesus says, uh, you know, it's up to you. Bid unto you according to your faith. I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. Isn't that incredible? Jesus didn't say, now, believe God for it. Now, don't get crazy on this. I mean, God's not going to do all the crazy things you think up. God's not going to be, like, weird. So don't ask for any weird things. You know, is that what Jesus taught us on prayer? Jesus actually taught us. Sort of think weird. Sort of go crazy. And you know what? You say, Lord, I ask the name of Jesus to move that mountain. I'm going to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond moving that mountain. And when people have that kind of faith, you know, when I'm really sick, I, I you know, Calvary Chapel, we're sort of a mixture of Baptist people and charismatic people and Methodist people. And, you know, we have, we sort of have a sort of a mixture here, don't we? But when I'm sick, I want the Pentecostals. You know, you get the Baptist, Lord, we ask you and pray to, you know, to heal this brother, and, but you will be done, even if you don't heal him. Amen. You know? And it's like, why did I bother here? But then you got those Pentecostals, man, they're casting everything out, and they're shaking you, and they're, they're believing God, and you feel like, man, I got prayed for. Woo! I feel good. I believe. I love people with that, that, that Pentecostal faith. I love people with that heart to just say, Lord, you've brought me to this course. And I'll tell you what, the courses don't end as you get older. I think a lot of the courses that are the most difficult, you almost have to be older for them to affect you. You know, it's a, it's a tough thing. Some things you go through, you know, I lost my, 21-year-old son a few years back. And this last Friday, a good friend of ours from Redlands, his 21-year-old son died in a car accident. It's a, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to go through that. And there's other difficult things that you, you go through. I think, I think it just, you see more crap, if you would, as you get older. You see evil, be more evil. You know, you think, man, I've seen so much evil in my lifestyle, in my lifetime, in these 40 or 50 decades, I've seen evil, and then evil shows itself to even be more evil. And you're like, it's, this is more of a wicked of a world than I ever could dream of it to be when I was 10 years old or 20 years old. The world's showing itself to be more perverted. You know, serial killers weren't always around, you know, that didn't start till like the 1970s. And then it became a fad, you know? It's, it's a wild and, and crazy world. And yet, 
like the stars on their course in the solar system. God has it all in control. And I'll tell you what, I would not have finished the race or even come close to continuing the race had I not had the incredible joy of the sovereign hand of God. You know, they, they estimated for many years that the amount of sand on our earth, 10 to the 25th power, is probably about the same amount of stars in the universe as they estimated how many stars are in our galaxy and how many galaxies they predicted to be. Of course, the, the, the Hubble um, has now opened their minds to even more. But for years, they used to say it's very close to the same. Now you got scientists that say, well, the distance between the atom in a sand is further than one star to another star, if you, if you, if you look at it relatively. So that's sort of interesting, too. And so there's different ways of looking at it. But just for analogy's sake, imagine if I gave you a handful of sand and I got a big, giant piece of wood out here, you know, a big, giant plywood, and I, and I put that sand on that plywood. And I said, hey, take each of those pieces of sand and look at it, know it by its characteristics, give it a name according to his characteristic, put it on that piece of plywood, keep it in that spot, and do that for every piece of sand. And I come over to you going, what's this piece of sand? <laughs> right? Oh, that's Ernie. This is why I named him that. You know, blah, blah, blah. Just one handful of sand. But yet all the sand on earth, as the Bible says God's hand spans the universe. He's put every star into its place and given it a name. Now, I, I, you try to keep one of those pieces of sand in place. You know, I don't think you can do it. I think, you know, the dog runs through or somebody sneezes and boy, you are in trouble. And yet there is that reality that not one star falls from the sky when not one piece of sand on the earth turns over if you would that god doesn't know about god knows every piece of sand by name and every movement of that sand the lord has has knowledge of it he knows you right down to every hair upon your head a lot of birds and not one sparrow anywhere on this planet falls to the ground that God doesn't take note of. There, there's just something incredibly healing and comforting, knowing that all the trials you go through, all the difficulties, whatever the course is, and you think, I think I've been through most of the courses already. I'm sort of on a downhill of t on the course. Uh, watch out. You might be surprised. But nevertheless, this course that God has laid out, it's, it's a good fight. It's a great race. It's the most glorious of races. And therefore, we want to finish it. Because he goes on to say, or the last part, I have kept the faith. So faith, hope, love, these three, they're beautiful. Paul here is speaking. He's going to really talk about the crown of 
life he has for righteousness and and the hope it's just spilling out i'm being poured out as a drink offering and and for joy i'm running this race and i'm glad for you that i have the joy of being poured out as a drink offering and service and sacrifice for you guys there in colossi or philippi and i i just love the fact that my life is going to end up giving the last drop for you to serve you, to love you, to bless you. Faith is beautiful. Hope is beautiful. And love. These, these three, but the greatest is love, isn't it? Well, verse 8. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all those who loved his appearing. There is a reward coming. He tells us it's a crown of righteousness. Now, there was the crown that the king wore. This is not that crown. This is Stephanos. It's also interesting in the same name, Stephen in Greek. Crown of victory. Like in a Olympics, you get the Olympic uh, gold medal. In those days, you would get a wreath upon your head. And, and it's an amazing thing is the various athletes from all over the world would come and be a part of these different Olympic games and to be the best in the world. Paul is saying, I'm going to get one from God, the victory crown. We find that he actually named some other crowns. This one here is called the crown of righteousness for finishing. There's a crown of glory, Peter talks about, for being a faithful shepherd and pastor of whatever flock God's given you. There's a crown of life, James says, for fighting temptation and not giving into it. Crown of righteousness, a crown of glory, a crown of life. We also know that this is an eternal crown. In 1 Corinthians 9.25, he says, but we fight. We are in the race. We're in the boxing match. We're in the wrestling match for an imperishable crown, one that lasts forever. You say, well, I don't really care if I have a crown or not. Well, read Revelation 4. I think you're going to want a crown. In Revelation 4, verse 10 and 11, the 24 elders fell down before him who sits on the throne and worshiped him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist, and we're created. The crown of righteousness, he helped us to finish the race. By his grace, we're there. He, through his sacrifice, finished his death and resurrection, that we could have the righteousness of Christ, the crown of righteousness, how we want it just to take it and to throw it before him. There's many other great rewards. The fullness of eternal life in heaven, being with Jesus alone, isn't that enough? The new resurrection, a new glorified body. Everything's going to melt with a fervent heat, a new heavens and a new earth. There is so much to keep running the race, right? Well, in verse 8, he finishes by saying, and not just for me, but to all those who love his appearing. 
Are you thinking, man, I just can't wait to be with the Lord? I, the, the thing that rejoiced me, I was watching some stuff today on the nation of Israel and the country. And when I do that, I just long for Israel. <laughs> but I've been to Israel and it's glorious to, to visit. <laughs> but it's not a glorious place. It's a, it's a piece of dirt with dirty looking houses everywhere. It's, it's not a glorious place. It smells like diesels going through there. But yet when Christ comes to rule and reign upon this earth, I don't think our governor of California is excited about Jesus appearing. I really don't. Because it's going to look the opposite of what he's doing. He's so proud of himself that he went against the wishes of Californians, Prop 8, Prop 22, we both said no homosexual marriages. We voted it down, but yet it'd go to the Ninth Circuit Court, got thrown out, and even when it was illegal, he prided himself that they were doing it in San Francisco City. And now these crazy things that they're coming up with, that, you know, Partial birth abortion's not enough. That's where you, person can be having the baby at eight months or nine months. The baby comes out, you just stop it at, with the head. You have a device that scrambles its brains. Then you pull the baby out. Well, now they want to make it so you can pull the baby out first and then kill it on the table. That's what New York is doing. That's what, I can't remember, Georgia? Was it Georgia that was trying to do it? The governor, Alabama? I can't remember now. Yeah, th this, is, this is crazy. These, these things that you think cannot even exist. And as crazy it is, the laws in every state is, if, if you kill, if you get in a car wreck, you're a drunk driver and hit a lady who's pregnant, even if she's on her way to the abortion clinic. It's two murders, right? But yet, if you could prove that she's on her way to the abortion clinic, only a block away, and she has an appointment, it wouldn't matter. It would still be. You murdered the baby. It's a murder if you're a drunk driver and you kill a pregnant lady. But if you got a place to do it and you call yourself a doctor, then it's not murder. Insanity. We're in an insane world. And we have to just come to that place to just, Lord, I love your appearing. Jesus, you, your government. Let all the governments of the world rest upon your shoulder. You be wonderful, counselor, prince of peace. Let almighty God come here, right? And this is where, again, those who are ready. Are you ready? I want to finish with two verses. In 1 John 2, verse 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Guys, let, let this exhortation of Paul saying, I look back and I fought the fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. I, I, I don't have regrets. It was a joyful race. I sacrificed 
I'm, my life is being poured out as a living sacrifice. I'm going to be beheaded before Nero, Nero in a few days. And my last little bit that's poured out will be trying to share the Lord with this madman who will put me to death. But yet I will finish that race. I'm abiding in him with joy. No matter what difficulties come, I've been shipwrecked, I've been beaten with rods, with whips, I've even been stoned to death. Doesn't matter. I, it's just, I'm a living sacrifice anyway, so it doesn't matter. But don't be ashamed at him, or don't be ashamed before him at his coming. Jude 20 to 25. But you, beloved, build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating him with a garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior alone be wise, be glory, majesty, dominion, power, both now and forevermore. And Lord, we come before you. We want an abundant entry into your kingdom. We want a joyful finish of this race. We don't want to shrink away in shame at your appearing. As Jude says, we, we don't want to be those that are getting snatched up in the rapture, but yet our garments are stinky with our sin. And our hearts are half-hearted, but yet the foundation of salvation there, but not a joyful entry. We may have a crown of righteousness, but not the crown of glory, not the crown of life, not all that you desire to do us. Lord, we want the ticker tape parade. We want the angels rejoicing and the great cloud of witnesses high-fiving us saying, you've done well, well done, good and faithful servant. So Lord, we give ourselves to you, our weaknesses, our sin, our failures, our lack of character our inability to be what you would have us to be and say, Lord, we are here, wanting now to grab a hold of what you grabbed a hold of us for. And we know the race is not finished. The course is not done until we're that final drop. So Lord, now unto you, who's able to keep us from stumbling and unto you who will present us faultless, before your presence with glory, with exceeding joy. To you, God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. We give ourselves and surrender afresh and anew tonight. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you richly. And uh, we're continuing the rest of the time of prayer, the week in prayer. We have, sent, we have each morning at six o'clock, and at noon, set aside here in the sanctuary if you'd like to pray uh, as we're praying.